This is Phelan and Myers, two for 20 with the Phelan and Myers Wealth Management Group of Janie Montgomery Scott. Janie, a member of FINRA, SIPC, and the New York Stock Exchange, maintains a presence in Duluth with their office at 6340 Sugarloaf Parkway, Suite 130 in Duluth, Georgia. and salutations, everybody. Uh, Stephen Julian, your trusty co-host here for Phelan and Myers 2 for 20 podcast. That means sitting to my right is the incomparable Scott Phelan. Hope you're doing well. Doing great. Good. You have a fantastic guest, so let me get out of your way and let you introduce who we got in the studio with us today. Yes, so we have Bill Bruton with us today, and what we're going to be talking about today is the basics of fraud protection. And there are lots of different types of, you know, uh, topics that we're going to be covering as it relates to fraud protection. So, First, with Bill, let me turn it over to him real quick so he can give you a little bit of his background because it's a really impressive, neat background. So, Bill, do you mind telling us a little bit about you know where you've come from and what you've done in the past? Glad to do. I was uh, worked for the Internal Revenue Service Criminal Investigation Division for over 25 years, and I ended up in Atlanta uh, in 1988 and started working uh, illegal income cases and uh, working a lot with the FBI and DEA, and retired in 1999. Okay. And you currently testify in court a lot. I've testified in court with, I've done it with Fulton County and several death penalty cases where I was working for the government trying to determine where the money came from to pay for uh, the heinous acts. I've also worked for defense attorneys and testifying uh, for their clients on where the money went and where it came from. Okay. I got you. So, like I mentioned in the intro, I mean, there's lots of different things that we can cover here. So, why don't we start with the basics, you know, things like guarding personal information, you know, social security numbers, account numbers, stuff like that. I mean, do you have any kind of pointers you would initially give us? I've talked to a lot of clients uh, after they've gotten in trouble uh, with somebody who has uh, gotten their social security number, and it's relatively simple if you don't guard yourself. One of the things I always tell people is never use the word yes on a call that you didn't make. So if they call up and say, is this Bill Bruton? You naturally would say yes. Right. But what I tell clients to do is, is this Bill Bruton? How may I help you? Because what they try and do is capture the word on a recording, yes. Then when they get you in some type of fraud situation, they play back a different question and then you have the word yes that I agreed to whatever you said. So if you never say the word yes, they can't use that against you. The other thing that they'll do is they'll try and get your social security number. And what I do is I ask the client, I says, well, you're calling from Medicare, for example. What information do you have? And they say, well, what's your date of birth? What information do you have? I never give out my date of birth or my address or my age or my social security number, I ask them what they have. And it's always interesting. Uh, I've gotten so many of those uh, recently on Medicare that uh, I finally had to switch phone numbers because I was getting these things Mm -hmm. 25 times in the morning Mm -hmm. from from the same scam, same type of accent, and it's all coming from a spoofed spoofed phone number uh, in in this area. Would you, uh, would you, some people might say, hey, just don't even answer any of those calls is that not necessarily the best advice because there are the occasional someone trying to reach you or is it like nothing important happens over the phone that that's legit sometimes uh, you can get legitimate 
calls from the phone. For example, pharmacies will call you that you have prescriptions there. Scott Phelan may call me on my on my. That's a very legitimate call. And yes. and I, I'm very guarded when he calls. <laughs> uh, but I have an answering machine, and I try and listen to what the person says. Right. Most of the scam calls, they won't even leave a message. If you don't answer, they'll hang up. But I use the answering machine as my guardian to find out who's there, what they're calling about, et cetera. Sometimes I like to play games with them just because if I use their time, somebody else isn't, uh, isn't being bothered by them. And as long as you don't curse at them, they can't hang up on you. Uh, they, so you can keep them talking for a Sometimes they just do hang up on me with some <laughs> foul language uh, because I won't give them what they want. But as a but as a quick recap, the the best thing you would say never say yes. Never say yes. Uh, never give out any personal information, and don't be scared to answer a question with a question. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Fantastic advice. Well, and I think this is a good a good point to jump in and say. Also, my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, is is the IRS does not call the because IR- there are some scams out there. They will send a letter. Correct. The the IRS scam is is someone will call you saying I'm a I'm an officer with the IRS. Of course, IRS doesn't have any officers. They have revenue officers, they have revenue agents, and they have special agents. But they won't call you unsolicited. They'll send you a letter, uh, unless, of course, you're a witness in something. But in that case, they're not going to ask you uh, for information over the phone. They're going to ask, can I come over to visit you, or would you come down to my office? They're never going to ask you your Social Security number uh, or tell you you're under investigation or there's a warrant for your arrest uh, over the phone. Speaking of that, let me uh, let me take that, what you just said, and kind of go to the next thing. Uh, talk a little bit about emailing uh, and how to protect yourself as you're emailing potential information. And then also, uh, if you want to kind of also talk about the topic of, of personal records, um, how long you keep them, how to destroy them. Uh, yeah, personal if, records being what I would think account statements for brokerage firms and then also uh, tax documents. Tax I get that question And bank lot. statements. Yeah. And yep. bank statements, yeah. Yep. Let's start with emailing. Email. I always look at the sender's email. For example, you could get something from uh, a bank and the email address will say representative at, but the scam emails will say representative at a... Dot com. They'll change the name or they'll misspell just slightly. And I never respond back to those at all. Mm. Uh, I just put them in the junk folder and, and let it go. I also never respond to an email address if it's asking for my social security number or date of birth. What they'll try and do is to get you to say this is, and we want to confirm because there has been a $10,000 withdrawal from your account, and we want to verify that uh, you authorized it, and you say back, oh my God, that's not me. I didn't do it. And well, what is your password? What is your social security number? Uh, What is your account number? So we can send it to our fraud department. That's a red flag and, and lightning should be going off. I, I believe most financial institutions, and Scott, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong here, but most financial institutions, much like the IRS, we will never ask for personal information on an email. That usually only happens on a phone call and they're confirmed, you know, they, they need to confirm some stuff. And again, you don't say yes, you, you make sure they've got your information before you most financial institutions, when they email you, will say right on their email, we will not ask you for your social security number or your bank account. And that's a, a red flag if they don't ask that, but I never respond back to. What I do is if they say, well, we got a problem with your account, I go directly to my connection directly. I avoid the, the replying to the email or I'll call, did you send me an email? I never reply back to them directly. 
through an email. Scott, I, I'm going to pivot to you and ask you a quick question. So as someone who's in the financial uh, institution and helping people with their investments, um, how do you try to protect your clients uh, and their information? And what are some of the, uh, much like what he's talking about with a bank, uh, do, do you guys at your firm try to do the same thing to, to protect your clients and their information? Yeah, you know, if we need a social security number, for example, we either call the client or have the client call us. We, we don't put anything in email, you know, as it relates to that. Um, in terms of account statements and things, if a client needs us to email us email a statement to a mortgage company, for example, we just send it secure. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so we, we get around that. So, Bill, so kind of like Stephen had, had mentioned, what about uh, uh, financial statments as well as tax returns? How many how many years do you, do you, would you recommend? Recommending that? 10 years probably at the most. Minimum is six years because the IRS statute of limitations civilly is three years. But criminally, it's six years, and they can go back if you haven't filed or if there are other questions, they can go back 10 years. So I recommend people keeping your financial statements, bank statements, for example, and your tax returns for 10 years. In fact, I still have my first original tax return I ever filed, which was on a computer card, which was three inches by 10 inches, and I still have the original one. What year, is, what year was that? Uh, <clears throat> that was, <laughs> was it, a, couple, a couple years ago. A couple yeah. years ago. Pre, couple years pre, ago. Uh, pre-1985, probably. Pre, so. pre, pre-1970. <laughs> so that's more than 10 years. That's now, more, do you have all of them, or did you keep that one because it was the first one and, and it's on a computer card, and that's cool? I have in some fashion probably all of my tax okay. returns. So, but, so but then again, do as I, I, I say, not I, as I do. <laughs> but then again, I work for the IRS, right? And uh, I just wanted to make sure that they never came after me for my tax returns. But Un- bank understood. statements keep them ten years. Uh, the bank will generally keep them for six years, sometimes to ten years. But the IRS, if they ever want to go back and and, and you want to verify that you're right and they're wrong, or a credit reporting agency, uh, you want to you want to keep your credit loans, your mortgage loans forever, because you don't know what's going to happen 20 years from now. Are you a a fan of uh, shredding services, you know, kind of getting everything shredded? Are you trying to do it yourself, Uh, you know, burn them in the backyard? What's the... (laughs) I have a burn barrel in my backyard. Yeah, yeah. And literally, I have a box in the house, and the whole family comes in. If they got something, my daughter will bring bags of stuff over, and I burn it. Uh, I worked a case one time where the information was so sensitive, we shredded the information, and then we were required to burn the shred because it was so sensitive. Because there are some mechanisms, not with the new shredders, but there are some mechanisms where they can recreate what you shredded. Right, right. I've I've seen that on TV. Yes. As seen on TV. So you mentioned credit. Are you a fan of freezing credit? I'm an absolute fan of anybody over 18 freezing their credit. It's inconvenient but not difficult to start it, and it's inconvenient but not difficult to, to postpone it. For example, uh, I froze my credit many, many, many years ago. When I went to buy a car, I knew that they were going to check my credit rating. So I asked them, which service are you going to check? So I just sent on their secure website a message, unfreeze my credit for 30 days. Went back then to the uh, car company. They checked the credit, no problem. And in 30 days later, it was refrozen. But freezing your credit helps you in so many ways, and it's so almost it's free almost because nobody can get credit in your name. They can't check your credit. They can't get credit cards. They can't buy stuff in your name with credit. 
and and let me be clear and just ask for clarification when you're talking about freezing your credit you're talking about your suggestion your idea is anyone at any time we should all just kind of have our credit frozen just ask them to freeze your credit and then you can unfreeze as needed as you go to do purchases my recommendation anybody who who is over 18 yes freeze their credit under 18 probably yeah. not practical but you can also on an annual basis request your credit report mm-hmm. from the three credit reporting agencies right you can take a look then what it says if anybody has got credit uh requested credit that you didn't approve you got time to kill that great advice never heard that one before okay so one thing that i get i really started getting a number of questions about here in the last year or so is home title lock can you speak to that a little bit and just talk about is it is it worth buying i mean to me it almost seems like a solution in search of a problem but you tell me your opinion about uh, 10 years ago, the FBI did a study on title seizures of homes, and they determined that there were about 800 million homes ha- had titles to them, but only 10,000 of those, or they only had 10,000 cases where somebody had uh, attempted to get or had gotten the title to that house. Again, I think if freezing your credit is the first step in, in doing that. The second thing that I recommend to all of my family members is getting a home equity line of credit. It costs a little bit to get it. I rarely, if ever, use it. But if somebody wants to take my title to my house and try and sell it, I ought to have an automatic block on it because I've got a lien or a loan against that. If you have a mortgage, home equity line of credit is just a second line of defense because if you have a mortgage on your home, for somebody to change that title, they have to satisfy the mortgage. Speaking of uh, just kind of talking about homes and and uh, let's kind of move it a little bit into uh home repair uh and then also a very broad topic of well let's stick with home repair and and some of the other scams that happen you've talked about uh irs governmental scams uh you've talked about people just fishing for information from calling medicare other things like that talk a little bit about uh home repair scams uh and some of the other ways that people kind of come at you and try to try to get your information or, or try to scam you there are two approaches that I've have found uh, that they use. Is one is they'll just walk up and down the street knocking on doors mm-hmm. and saying, we want to inspect your roof or we want to replace your windows, and you have no idea who this person is, have no idea about their company. In many cases, they'll ask for a significant down payment in advance, and they'll never come back and do the repair. And, and I would think that a lot of time that would happen if there was a, a hurricane or a tornado or something like that where there was a lot of destruction in a particular area because you probably can't find people to do work. So you know, p- people are dependent and need somebody to do the work, so they become an easy target at that point. If you have a mass uh, destruction or a mass event, you have a lot of people coming out of the woodwork, coming from out of state to do business. Yeah. They have no license to do the business in the state. They have no insurance. And if somebody gets hurt on your property, if they have no insurance, you have to cover it. And sometimes they'll take the money, which is more than what it should have cost. They'll never do any repairs or they'll do such shoddy work that you have to have somebody else coming in and do it. So my recommendation is never accept the person coming to the front door. Call the county uh, code enforcement. Call the county inspectors. Ask them for a recommendation as to who you can use. Going back to the county, they have the names of good people and they will tell you uh, who's a good person. You might talk to the person that comes to your door, but I would never engage them at all to do the work and never, never give them any money. 
one of the other th- things that I think is uh, on the rise is uh, scams, especially with seniors and especially in the area of caregiving. Um, you mentioned Medicare and some of those kind of calls. What are what are some of the what are some of the family and caregiver scams that uh, that you've heard about and try to help people with? The one that just tears me up is is what I call the grandmother scam. Mm. Is they'll call up and they'll and they'll find out just from the answering of the phone that it's an elderly person, and they'll say, "Grandma, this is your grandson." Mm. Oh, is this Jimmy? Yes, it's Jimmy. Mm. And they'll say, "Grandma, I'm in trouble." Could you send me $10,000 or $500 to get me out of jail or I'm in the hospital or something? And they'll send it and they'll say, uh, give it to me as a gift card. But what I want you to do, Grandma, is to read the number off the back of it. You don't have to send it to me. Just read the number off the back of it. Then they recreate it and go online and sell it. And the other scam that I've seen, even my own pastor has, has sent me an email. Actually, his email was was scammed from him. And it says, I'm in XYZ country, and uh, I need some money. Could you send me some money? Yeah. Of course, I always told, uh, told my uh, pastor, I, uh, Pastor, I sent you the money, and could you give it back to me? And he, he says, oh, my gosh, they did it again. Uh, but you never, ever take an email or a phone call from somebody. And, and if you have an elderly parent or an elderly relative, see if you could convince them to help you help them. Right. With with their, their with their finances as a double check and, and maybe have required signatures on their bank accounts or whatever. I thought you were going to tell the pastor I already gave on Sunday. I'm not giving you anything yeah. over email on Tuesday. <laughs> so, sorry. A little church joke. So, Scott, we're, as we kind of wrap up here, you, you wanted Bill to come in. Obviously, uh, mm-hmm. some great stories. Uh, and, and he's obviously helped with a lot of areas. Um, what are you seeing in terms of uh, fraud protection as you've been working with your clients? Yeah, the, the biggest thing with us is, is if somebody sends an email and says, "Hey, uh, you know, can you send me X amount of my ten thousand dollars to my bank account? I, you know, I need to uh, put a down payment on the car." As an example, yeah. we just verbally confirm everything, so right. we we don't do anything via email as it relates to that. You know, phishing. You know, talking to clients, phishing scams. Sometimes, you know, I see that some. I get questions a lot about how long do we hang, do you hang on to statements and tax returns? I'm yeah. glad, Bill. You know, ten years. I. That was a little bit longer than I realized, so yeah. I'm glad that we've got that information. Uh, we've hit on a lot today. I think we've covered pretty much everything. Is there anything, Bill, on your end that, that, that you've seen out there that we should throw in before we wrap this up? I just want to reconfirm what Scott does. When I've called Scott or sent him an email saying, you know, move X number of dollars from one account to another account or, or send it to my sister, he always calls me. Yeah. If I say sell this stock, he always calls right. me. Buy this stock. He always calls me, and I think that's a great relief on, for me. As technology continues to improve and as we continue to be able to move faster, when it comes to your personal information and it comes to your financial information, there is something to be said about a personal relationship. You have a personal relationship with Scott as your advisor. You talk about, I have a contact at the bank. I, having contacts when around your money and around your personal information, slow down, take your time. Don't, you know, don't do anything foolish or quickly. That sounds like the advice I feel like you've been giving us. Absolutely, and I agree with everything, yes. fantastic. Bill Bruton, thank you uh, so much for being here. Uh, Scott booked a great guest. And, uh, thank you, Bill. That was excellent. Yeah, and uh, thank you for allowing me to uh, co-host with you. So uh, for our guest, Bill Bruton, and for Scott Phelan, this is Stephen Julian saying we'll uh, catch you next time on Phelan and Myers, 2 for 20. 
This is Phelan and Myers, two for 20 with the Phelan and Myers Wealth Management Group of Jannie Montgomery Scott. Jannie, a member of FINRA, SIPC, and the New York Stock Exchange, maintains a presence in Duluth with their office at 6340 Sugarloaf Parkway, Suite 130 in Duluth, Georgia. The information provided here is taken from sources which we believe to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of such information is not guaranteed by us. This is not an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any securities. Opinions expressed are subject to change without notice and do not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial situation, or needs of individual investors. Employees of Janney Montgomery Scott LLC or its affiliates may, at times, release written or oral commentary, technical analysis, or trading strategies that differ from the opinions expressed here. Investing may involve market risk, including possible loss of principal. Janney Montgomery Scott LLC, its affiliates, and its employees are not in the business of providing tax, regulatory, accounting, or legal advice. Any tax-related statements are not intended for and cannot be used or relied upon by any such taxpayer for the purpose of avoiding tax penalties. Any such taxpayer should seek advice based on the taxpayer's particular circumstances from an independent tax advisor. For more information about Janney, please see Janney's Relationship Summary Form, Form CRS, on Janney.com forward slash CRS, which details all material facts about the scope and terms of our relationship with you and any potential conflicts of interest. For a full description of Janney's Investment Advisory products and services, please refer to Janney's Form ADV Part 2, available on Janney's website or by contacting a Janney Financial Advisor.